What you don't know is if Beijing is actually trying to reform the system, and this looks like um, an attempt to actually introduce credit risk into the system, at what point uh, the correct market pricing of credit risk spills over into broader contagion into financial markets and starts to impact uh, financial stability more broadly. And I would argue that this point we're seeing right now is exactly that kind of moment where you have this debate ongoing about what exactly Beijing's reaction function is. Evergrande is into a grande mess. But what is Evergrande exactly? Why does it matter? And what can I do to get my hands on one of those 90 million empty houses in China causing all of this in the first place? Since this week is the Super Bowl of China financial system analysts, of course, we had to bring back to the pod the reigning MVP Logan Wright to tell us what the hell is going on. For a Logan highlight reel, please read his masterpiece report, Credit and Credibility, and check out the last few times Logan came on China Talk to warn us about the moment that we are all currently living through. Co-hosting is John Sign, Rhodium intern and Substacker himself, who covers China-adjacent stuff at non-obvious excavations. Check out the link in the show notes. One quick announcement. I'll be in the Bay Area October 5th through the 10th or so. It would be great to meet up. Please get in touch with me either on Twitter or I'll leave my personal email in the show notes. Thanks. So, Logan, could you give us an overview of what Evergrande is, its importance to the real estate sector, and sort of a broader overview of how this is all unfolding right now? Sure. Um, So Evergrande is China's largest uh, property developer and its most indebted. Um, It has run into trouble largely because of the imposition of new financing controls on China's property developers, the so-called three red lines, which are based on uh, controls on how much interest-bearing debt property developers can borrow on their balance sheets based on three existing ratios. And the firm's large debt burden has you know, come into greater focus. Uh, it's been downgraded multiple times, and there's increasing risks of a default. The other issue is that as ever, Beijing has been very reluctant to provide support to the company so far, an issue I'll, I'll get into um, sort of later in the, the discussion, Um, Other property developers are also seeing their bonds sell off, and there's been a a rise in financing costs for the sector as uh, as a whole, and that is feeding some of the the market contagion this week. Um, Globally, this started to spill over into global markets earlier this week with concerns that this would have a broader impact on China's growth rate, um, on future potential growth because of the importance of the property sector to the economy. Why were the three red lines imposed in late 2020? Well, I think one issue was that there was still Beijing has been waging this extensive war against property speculation for a long period of time. And, and I'll sort of take you back a little bit to, to how this started. Property has been the bubble in the Chinese uh, economy that has not burst for the last uh, t- for the last decade. People have been talking about it and the potential financial fragilities for over a decade at this point. Um, and it's entered several different stages. But ultimately, there has been a concerted effort uh, in Beijing to reduce the possibility of this, quote unquote, gray rhino risk, this idea that there is a problem that everyone is aware of, but you are neglecting that's commonly cited within uh, Chinese government documents in association with the property sector. And there's an effort to reduce the scale of the property sector's imprint on the economy as a result. If if you're in Beijing right now, you're probably looking at the property sector and you're saying, yes, all this construction does drive growth, does drive employment. But looking ahead, um, 
The demographics of China suggest that we don't need that much new property going forward. Um, it does suggest that prices are so high that uh, households have to take on so much debt that they can't spend as much in order to service mortgage loans for property. And that's actually weakening consumption in areas that we would actually like to encourage. So those motives have long been active. And the three red lines was really, you know, a very extreme development that kind of reflected uh, Beijing's efforts to control leverage within the sector in a way that other measures had failed. Previously, they had tried to restrict what lenders could actually extend credit to property developers. Now they were targeting the borrowers. And so it was a very game-changing development. They just said, it doesn't matter where you get your credit from, you cannot actually post a growth in interest-bearing debt unless you actually meet some of these three critical ratios. So that's why it was so important, so important back in 2020. But let me just take a, a little step back here because there's all this focus on Evergrande itself. Um, there's a lot less focus on Evergrande is, is, uh, it's a notable story by its, uh, on its own, but it is really, you know, indicative of this broader trend in the property sector overall. It's exceptional because of its size. It's not really exceptional because of its, um, because of its, uh, financing methods. And the story of how they got into this position is very similar to, you know, what's happened to the property sector overall. So. The last time we saw a meaningful correction in the property sector in China was 2014, um, early 2015. And one could argue that that really should have been essentially the peak of China's property sector uh, in the 2013-2014 period. Um, right after the financial crisis, you had a huge surge in uh, speculation in the property market, huge surge in credit fueled uh, an expansion in construction activity. There was a huge accumulation of inventories because Beijing was concerned even at that time about speculative purchases. They started controlling um, purchases and, and sales in uh, major cities to try to keep prices under control. Uh, there was a mini correction in late 2011 um, in the market as monetary tightening hit and property prices declined temporarily. But most people viewed that as an opportunity to, to pile back in. So more construction continued. And you had this huge growth, therefore, of stock of the property sector relative to sales. So you had this huge inventory accumulation. This was the time of ghost towns and uh, the overbuilding phase that really started. It was in this 2010 to 2014 period that most of that stock has been accumulated. And if you look at the video that's been going around the Internet of the, the 15 buildings in Kunming that were demolished all at once, in one of their new districts that's, um, I think the FT linked to it in, in their big uh, piece on the property sector and China's growth model. It just kind of shows that that's around the time that these, I don't know about that particular project, but that's around the time that many of these were built. So um, you had this huge inventory accumulation at that time. And by 2014, you had a correction. So why was it that, that we aren't, we're still talking about property prices rising even seven years later um, after that time? Well, one factor was the policy was far more supportive toward growth at that time and toward the property sector and spe specifically, and they deployed this uh, mechanism called the Shantytown Redevelopment Program. And so the whole idea was, how do we create, there's, there's not much demand right now for property, especially in these smaller cities. How do we create demand for property? And the answer is, well, uh, it's pretty simple. You relocate existing residents, you demolish their existing houses, which some of which were quote unquote shanty towns, some of which were built, you know, actually much later. 
you provide cash compensation, and then they can buy houses out of existing stock. So that process was actually pretty successful. It reduced overall inventories for about three years in the property sector, and it created this artificial source of demand. But then they basically shut it down because all the cash compensation was just fueling additional speculation and even higher prices. So rather than more people, you know, building or, you know, buying into the market, you ended up seeing this dynamic where uh, prices were rising. It was becoming even, you know, less affordable. It was becoming even less affordable than before. And the government was indirectly encouraging this speculation. Credit growth had basically been slowing across the country starting in late 2017. Property has benefited probably the most of any asset class in China uh, from the expansion of credit and very rapid rates of credit ever since the global financial crisis. Why was it that property didn't get hurt more when, as an asset class, when credit growth started to slow meaningfully during the deleveraging campaign really in late 2018? And that's another wrinkle to this, which is that uh, pre-sales, developers started relying on pre-construction sales to offset the finance that they had basically lost under the deleveraging campaign. So what you it, it sounds very crazy, but in China, it's very common for developers to basically buy land, do a little bit of initial construction, set up a sales room, and then start selling houses pre-construction. They can collect, believe it or not, 100% of the purchase price. And people are willing to buy that early in the process simply because they know that uh, they think that prices will continue to rise. It's a market that only really makes sense in an environment of very high historical investment returns. But it's also essentially a form of financing. So rather than being bitten by deleveraging, developers were able to offset um, some of the pain of the deleveraging campaign with this reliance upon pre-sales financing. What's the problem with that? It only adds to the inventory problem. So we, we, we have these um, uh, continuing uh, paths uh, where the government tries to you know, pop this bubble or slow this curve. What, what's different in um, uh, September of 2021? Why did it, for, what, was the, what was the delay with the three red lines and why are we all talking about this right now? Well, it's basically August, September 2020 when they started imposing this. So this is about a year later and many property developers have been in trouble ever since they imposed the three red lines in place. The point is that developers, and this is what I was sort of getting to with the, the pre-sales phenomenon, developers had been able to find an alternate source of credit all the way through this process, even when deleveraging was biting. The only way that all of a sudden this model that allowed them to continue to find access to credit to continue building came to a head um, and, you know, came to, uh, you know, reached a, a, a point which it couldn't be sustained was when developers literally could not borrow anymore. And so if they could not borrow in the future, uh, that leaves them far more dependent upon actual sales revenues to generate cash and maintain cash positions. And therefore, they needed to start discounting units, accelerating sales. Many of them became even more reliant upon pre-construction sales in this process. So like I described, you have this process where starts were, you know, extremely housing starts. Construction was an extremely high level all the way back in 2013, 2014. You had these huge inventories, but starts hit an all time high in 2019, well after the fundamentals of the property market had turned and had already started to become more adverse. So 
you know, we we've noted that China has very high home ownership rates. They're over 80 percent in you know most household finance surveys. China has very high levels of household debt now that have increased substantially in the last uh, six years in particular. It's risen by six point four trillion dollars since the end of 2015, um, just in terms of household debt. That's very comparable to the run up in U.S. leverage. Uh, household leverage in the 2003 to 2008 uh, time frame. It may even be a, a bit larger depending upon how you're, how you're measuring it. And then you look at the demographics and there's just not enough young people coming in to form new households that are really going to form a foundation for fundamental demand. And as a result, what's different here is that you have the expiry of the Shantytown Redevelopment Program. You have the loss which had created this artificial source of demand. You had this loss of these financing channels um, that developers have been using to basically stay alive. And then you're exposed to this huge rise in starts and supply relative to this huge gap in fundamental demand. The only thing that's making up the difference right now is investment-driven demand. Investment-driven demand is highly uneven across the country. Um, and so you have, you know, only real interest in buying in, you know, second tier cities, first tier cities uh, for investment purposes. And that's really why the three red lines have bitten and why many developers are now under pressure, because the fundamentals of this market were always imbalanced. They became more imbalanced ever since the 2013-2014 correction that took place at that time. And now... Um, the imbalances are, are quite stark, and that's what the market is sort of waking up to, the idea that the most probable outcome here is that you have to slow construction meaningfully over the next uh, two to three years in order to rectify, uh, remedy those imbalances. In credit and credibility, you argue that the financial system's health is in large part predicated on people's perception that the government is ready, capable, and willing to step in and basically backstop, which is more or less a form of moral hazard. Do you see these reforms as geared towards trying to undo the moral hazard in the system? Um, to a certain extent, yes. I, th I think that the, the government is essentially trying to equalize the playing field between state-owned and private firms and to say that no firm is essentially too big to fail in this context. But that has, uh, you know, that's problematic. Credit credibility, I think, was written about exactly this kind of moment. Um, this is exactly why we were concerned about the rise in China's overall credit risks. And if you look and the decline in government credibility back in 2018, that seemed to be inevitable because Beijing didn't have an interest in protecting the riskiest and most peripheral parts of the financial system. Essentially, that's what you've seen in the last three years, a huge rise in stated credit risk. Many institutions have defaulted since that time, including Baoshang Bank, other uh, commercial banks, huge rise in state-owned enterprise uh, defaults in the bond market. Uh, bond market defaults are running at roughly twice the pace uh, of last year's, uh, twice last year's pace at this point, along with multiple ratings downgrades. So there's this significant rise in credit risk. You also have this interesting divide right now um, related to the Evergrande situation between the economic and political analysts looking at uh, where uh, Beijing's reaction function is, where how Beijing is actually going to respond to this stress. The economic analysts basically say, look, the property sector is a quarter of China's economy, higher in some estimates, like, uh, um, like uh, Kenneth Rogoff's 29%. Um, lower if you just take a strict proportion of gross fixed capital formation, but it's a large proportion uh, of the economy. 
no matter how you think about it. So there's really no way that Beijing can can do anything but support property construction over the medium term if they are still interested in um, you know maintaining a certain pace of uh, of economic growth. And therefore, you know, the consequences would be too messy. They basically have to step in. The political analysts are are saying something entirely different, which is that look how things have changed over the summer. Um, look at the crackdown on tech firms. Look at the crackdown on education and tutoring firms. Um, it doesn't look like China and Beijing leadership is uh, concerned about the immediate economic consequences of their actions. They may be concerned eventually, but they're certainly not concerned enough to stop this political campaign from continuing. And so in that context, everyone knows that they want to control the property sector as a source, as a, you know, within and its impact on the economy as a whole. So why should we be surprised that they are going to be, you know, reacting very uh, cautiously and providing only a very minimal source of support. So there's this interesting divide that's developing. And that's exactly the moment that we were, you know, concerned about in credit and credibility uh, when we wrote that in, when Dan Rosen and I wrote that back in, in 20, uh, late 2018. This was the dynamic where everyone knows that Beijing, in the event of a crisis, can provide liquidity to financial institutions, can, um, you know, suddenly backstop, uh, you know, any you know, bank that happens to run into to difficulty. What you don't know is if Beijing is actually trying to reform the system and this looks like um, an attempt to actually introduce credit risk into the system, at what point uh, the correct market pricing of credit risk spills over into broader contagion into financial markets and starts to impact uh, financial stability more broadly. And I would argue that this point we're seeing right now is exactly that kind of moment where you have this debate ongoing about what exactly Beijing's reaction function is. And while there are some initial indications in the press that, you know, there are preparations by Wall Street Journal reported overnight, there are preparations by local governments uh, to take over some Evergrande projects. You know, we're far short of a, a full plan here for um, an orderly workout or restructuring, and it's unclear exactly how there'll be the financial investors will be supported, which if it's one thing to have a workout that helps, uh, you know, that helps uh, in home buyers that have already to, committed to buying their houses, they need to have those delivered uh, to support contractors and suppliers. But if you are um, excluding any returns for uh, equity and bond investors, uh, for banks, then that's naturally going to have an impact on the financing environment for the sector, and it will contribute to some of the same pressures that have been forcing developers to discounting units, uh, reducing land sales, reducing future construction. And that's really where we're starting to see some of those spillovers occur. Um, we've written very recently on uh, the decline in land sales uh, that's underway right now. It's about 43% in the 100 city data so far in September. That's Deep, much deeper decline than what we saw in the 2014 cycle. And that's really the future pipeline of construction. So uh, a lot is in the balance here as we consider Beijing's reaction function. And that's exactly the kind of moment that we were flagging in credit and credibility. These moments where Beijing's credibility is changing, um, those are some of the most vulnerable for um, the state of the economy and the financial system. Let me uh, follow on with the question. It's actually posed by Adam Tu, who's frequent guest on China Talk. And he, he's saying a lot of what the lines that you're saying, it seems to be that they want to sort of orchestrate a change of the, you could say, growth model 
And he says that what if along with search of dominance over tech throttling of steel industry, uh, this is what a shifting of economic gears looks like. And then he goes on to chastise China watchers for saying, it's striking how rarely this question is posed. So I guess two questions. Do you think what he's saying is fair there? And then a sort of bigger question. Do you think they can be successful in shifting economic gears? Well, I think it's fair enough to say that this ref- that the markets are starting to reflect upon what it looks like for China to have a very different growth model um, and one that likely features lower rates of economic growth in the future if it's less reliant upon the property sector. Um, I don't think it's fair to say that China watchers haven't been thinking about this. We've we've um, you know, most of the discussion over the last 15 years has been about how China could rebalance its economy away from investments and exports and toward household consumption, a process that Beijing had embraced until very recently. It's really unclear how much some of the changes that have been sparked by the census data really suggest that Beijing is still committed to um, to economic rebalancing in that way and, and to more consumption-led growth. It's at least far more difficult if you assume that the demographic headwinds are are formidable um, in terms of of uh, the size of China's working age population having already been in decline uh, for at least the last five years. I think China watchers are considering these changes in the growth model. Um, There is this debate out there about how politically feasible that is. I think there's generally more uh, coherence right now in Beijing about the critique of China's current growth model rather than coherence around an alternative and what that alternative would really look like. You have, you know, some recent articles talking a lot about the German economic experience, the potential for China to have many small medium enterprises that are, you know, very high tech at the technological frontier, still export oriented, manufacturing oriented. That's interesting, but um, it's far from certain that there's really a desire to to get there at this point. Um, and I in general, there's, I think, just more criticism out there of um, the tech giants, the services-led economy, uh, the influence they have had, and some of those political currents have been um, have been carried through with the events you've seen over the summer. So a lot of people contrast first principles thinking with reasoning by analogy, and Evergrande has been compared to Lehman quite a few times recently. Well, what do you make of this popular comparison and is there an analogy that you like better? <laughs> yeah, I, I've on one of the media appearances this week, I was half um, compelled to joke. Well, you know, I really think the right analogy is uh, the Vienna Panic of 1873, just to see how people would react. Ah. When people are looking for these kinds of analogies, it shows just how much the narrative around China has already changed. What we are looking for is the appropriate way to think about the magnitude of the credit-related stress that is coming and whether that needs to be fit into a financial crisis versus an economic slowdown type framework. That by itself just shows how much the narrative has shifted and the shift from an expectation that China would basically be continuing roughly five to five and a half percent potential growth in the future to something that might be much lower. And I think that's ultimately um, the significance of the events of this week is that uh, there's been it'll be it, it's not that this is going to go back to I mean, eventually concerns about Evergrande will will fade from market consciousness. Um, you know, markets have short attention spans naturally and there's always a lot of news out there. Um, but it's not that these concerns about China's property sector or the slowdown in growth or 
the actions against the the technology companies are really going to to disappear anytime soon. We will be talking about these for quite some time. And I think ultimately that's the that's the significance. I, I don't think there's a very direct analogy to you know many of the past financial crisis uh, crisis episodes out there. So, so Logan, what are the second order impacts of Beijing capitals around the world and global financial markets if everyone ends up buying into uh, what you believe, which is that uh, you know the the current growth uh, trajectory which China has sustained for the past few decades is is ultimately unsustainable. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting how Beijing chooses to um, to, to message this, uh, because I'm certain that they'll still, you know, there's China has attached a considerable degree of uh, credibility behind the notion of its uh, inevitable rise. So the question then becomes, um, how do you message that credibly uh, in this world in which the property sector probably doesn't feature in China's economic growth? There needs to be an alternative model articulated and, and articulated uh, fairly clearly. Um, for other capitals around the world, I think it's, uh, you know, it does start to change perceptions um, of, um, you know, of, of how they'll think about um, either China as a, as a competitor or a partner. And it's hard to see exactly how that'll play out at this point because we just, it's very early days for this sort of uh, rethinking um, that's underway. But uh, I think that is going to be sort of the next stage of this. The other question is just, um, do we have another immediate round of, of financial stress-related news in China that sort of extends this story uh, beyond Evergrande itself? And of course, it is, as I mentioned, a much broader story than Evergrande itself. And what we would be most concerned about, as I mentioned, was uh, the decline in land sales, the feedback into already indebted local government financing vehicles, and the potential pressure on uh, smaller city commercial banks that lend to those local government financing vehicles, which is, you know, another uh, critical part of the the growth model in recent years, but has come under considerable pressure as those vehicles have become more indebted and can no longer provide um, the same degree of support for the economy as in the past. If you like this conversation, well, you can do the same sort of real research that Logan does every day because Rhodium's hiring. We currently have a mid-career role open for our corporate advisory practice based in New York or D.C. Check out the career page at rhg.com for more info. Logan, get some sleep. Thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thanks, Jordan.
我不知道这样抽了多少支烟，只有这样才能解除我的困倦。不想入睡，因为还有你，和回忆留在我心间。其实我也曾经幻想改变过去的遗憾。我该用什么状态告诉你？我最大的遗憾就是你，可是连一句再见也没有说，就这样悄无声息的离开我，我也没能奢望再和你相见，只是一个人看着照片，心有多痛自己体会自己醉。我该用什么状态告诉你，我最大的遗憾就是你。可是连一句再见也没有说，就这样悄无声息的离开我，我也没能奢望再和你相见，只是一个人看着照片，心有多痛自己体会自己醉。我该用什么状态告诉你，我最大的遗憾就是你。可是连一句再见也没有说，就这样悄无声息的离开我，我也没能奢望再和你相见，只是一个人看着照片，心有多痛自己体会自己醉，心有多痛自己体会自己醉。